so good to have you, and I hope your Bibles have been turned on or opened up to Revelation chapter 3. In another sign of the providence of God, I decided a number of months ago to preach a fall series through the seven churches of Asia. And with my schedule and all these things of in and out, wouldn't you know it, that God would ordain it, that I would be at this particular passage. I did not choose this passage for this day in the sense of specifically, literally had a plan to preach through these seven churches, and this was the church that I was on, and I think that this is a kind act of God's providence as we are at the Church of Philadelphia. And my message for us as we listen to the inaugural sermon in this, our new home, that I think there's nothing better than the hope and the help of the gospel, and only the gospel can fuel our mission. I want us to realize that we have an opportunity here, not only as Calvary Baptist Church, but as all of the churches that are a part now of Mile One Mission, both with Kilbride Community Church, and some are here today from that church, and I want to thank Pastor Matt for bringing some of those folks out, for Adam, who represents Downtown Community Church, that's simply in its starting stage and is a Bible study. John Lewis, who could not be with us, but is actually at Goose Bay, Labrador, at Northern Cross Community Church, and just messaged me to tell me there's 10 of them that have gathered there for church this morning, which is a real answer to prayer as well. And we hope to see more churches planted across this city in different neighborhoods, and indeed in different communities across Newfoundland and Labrador. But I want us to think about the balance between when opportunity knocks and yet when the going gets tough. A pastor by the name of Charles Simeon, who pastored Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years. He preached his first sermon there on November the 10th of 1782. And I guess as things have changed, they've stayed the same. The congregation did not want him. For five years, they refused to allow him to be the Sunday afternoon preacher, giving it instead to the assistant pastor they had wanted the church hierarchy to appoint over them. When that man left after five years, the church gave the lecturer to another man for the next seven years. So adding that up, that's 12 years. Simon responded, by holding Sunday evening services later than the Sunday afternoon service, people from the town began to come. The church wardens, in retaliation, locked the doors, leaving the people crowding in the street. Simon, not to be dismayed, had a locksmith open the doors. But when the wardens again locked the doors, he dropped the Sunday service, and only after 12 years did the church finally invite him to be their Sunday afternoon preacher. I guess their attitude was, if you can't beat them, join them. On Sunday mornings, though, the pew holders refused to come to the church and unlock their pew doors, refusing to let others sit in their personal pews. Charles Simeon personally funded and set up cheers in aisles and nooks and corners, but again, the church wardens came and removed them, get this, threw them out of the building, and at one point burned them on fire. That opposition continued for another 10 years, so 22 years. The historical records indicate that Simeon was helped by a legal decision in 1792 to the effect that pew holders could not lock their pews and stay away indefinitely. Here's the question. What sustained Charles Simeon through 20 years of opposition 
and hardship and very little fruit. Pastor from Minnesota, John Piper writes, Simeon exerted his influence through this, sustained biblical preaching year after year. This was the central labor of his life. Simeon preached in the same pulpit for 54 years through extraordinary opposition and trials. Calvary Baptist, I want you to realize, and those of you that are visiting, here is my message in a sentence. We need to be, as a group of professing Christians, as a church, so rooted and grounded that when the fierce winds of opposition and rejection and persecution blow into our lives, and they will, that we will stand like oaks of righteousness. But let me get personal with you. Here we are in the last quarter of 2022. It's been a long three years, hasn't it? Have you ever been tired, weary, and well-doing? Have you ever felt like the harder you tried, the worse it got? Have you ever experienced where you made the decision to serve God and then everything seemed to go wrong? Do you feel weak, insignificant, unnoticed, and unheard? Have you ever had moments or days or seasons where you feel like Satan's winning? Your flesh just fights against you. The world always seems to have the upper hand. Are there times when you feel like it's just not worth it? Does it seem like the world and people are just too hard and against the gospel? Have you ever felt like you may never see someone who is willing to hear you about Jesus ever again. If that's true, then the message of Charles Simeon, and when I'm finished, I want to tell you about another missionary by the name of Adnarm Judson as a way to encourage us and make us realize that as tough as times are, I believe opportunity is knocking. And that is the message from Jesus to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, as Sophia read them for us. John wrote in his gospel, the gospel of John, he who has my commandments, Jesus said, and keeps them, it is he or she who loves me. And he or she who loves me, here's the promise, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him or her and manifest myself to them. You see, the letter to Philadelphia is an example It's an example of how this verse plays out in a church. And as always, we want to see how Jesus describes himself. Because in the other churches, up to this point, Jesus has reverted back to Revelation chapter 1 in John's original vision. But here is different. To this church, the church at Philadelphia, we find something different. Jesus is going to reach back into the Old Testament for his description. Look at it in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to realize and remember this, as we go out into the world, we have a Christ of opportunity. We have a Christ of opportunity. And why can I say that? Because we have a God who is holy. We have a God who is holy. 
This is Jesus reaching back into the Old Testament, to literally using the name for God. If I were to translate it from Hebrew into English, it would literally be the God, how is holy. The Old Testament is filled with examples of this term. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or whom shall I be an equal with, says the Holy One? John is telling this church, he's telling you and I this morning, I am God. And while many people can claim authority, many people will claim to be some sort of leader in your life, just like when Jesus preached that Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew, the verse that fascinates me most is at the very end. When Matthew wants us to know that the crowd were amazed because Jesus, unlike all the other rabbis, all the other Pharisee, all the other scribes, Jesus was the one who spoke as if he had authority. See, this is the difference. When Jesus speaks, it is. And that's the difference. So God, Jesus says, I am God. Remember, the demons even believe this in Mark chapter 1. They said to Jesus, leave us alone. What have we got to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? And then they say this, I know you and who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This is how God describes himself. Jesus says, I am God. And the reason I am God is because I am holy. So Calvary Baptist, on this November the 6th of 2022, on our uh, inaugural service here in this new facility, I want to say it boldly for you as my witnesses, for everybody tuning in online, Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? Jesus was raised from the dead and is now alive at the right hand of God the Father, and He is reigning, and He is full of grace and truth. Can I get a witness? See, I'll make you half Pentecostal before the service is over. (laughs) Come on now, yeah. He's not only the God who is holy. See, you started it off in me. Now I'm going, holy, I'm getting in there, right? But according to Revelation 3, 7, he's also the God who is truth. He is the God who is truth. Was there ever a time in all of human history that young people and old alike need to know where truth can be found? We have an age where we have access to information like never before, and yet we are completely lacking in truth. People say things now, this is a fact, knowing full well they're lying to you. People have their version of facts. We've got people that say now, oh, I misremembered. That's actually a word now. But then God says to the church at Philadelphia, and he says to us today, I am truth. And that description, my friends, was meant to encourage us as Christians. It was meant to be an encouragement to this little church at Philadelphia that contrary to what the the, the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles were saying, Jesus is saying, I am holy, I am truth. Jesus is saying, I am God. Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 6 says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now watch this. No man or woman comes to the Father but by me. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Jesus is the most inclusive offer to all of humanity. Anybody can come. 
Anybody is welcome to Jesus, but Jesus and the gospel is also the most exclusive offer in human history because it is only through Jesus that you can come. You see, friends, I'll say it before, and I've said it, I'll say it, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Any way you want to choose to live your life, you'll get to God. Any philosophy, any religion, any outlook, whatever you want to make the God of your life, you can do it, and you will get to God as judge. There is only one way to get to God as Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the Holy One, and I am truth. But then he goes even further. Look at it again in verse 7. He says, I am the God who is in control. Jesus announces himself to the church of Philadelphia as the Holy One and the True One. And that was an astonishing claim. James Hamilton says, while some may have the audacity to identify themselves in this way, only Jesus is with the Father and the Spirit in being completely holy and true. And the fact that he is true speaks to his reliability. In other words, he can be trusted. You can trust Jesus today. The fact that he is holy speaks to his purity and his total consecration to God. He'll not lead you into sin. He won't lie to you. He won't do anything wrong to you. Those who hear Jesus announce himself as the holy one and the true one have their confidence in Jesus bolstered. And so it doesn't matter what the culture does. I know we live in a world where there's wars and rumors of wars. We turn on our televisions. We pick up our phones and all we see It's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy of how human beings hurt themselves and hurt each other. How we lie to each other. But this confidence in Jesus is not just an abstract assurance. I'm not here to sell you a philosophy. I'm not here to act like it's the Star Wars and it's a force out there to be tingled by. No, this confidence is practical and specific. Jesus begins to to articulate the particularity and specificity of faith in his holiness and truth in the next word. He says, I have the key of David. I'm the one who opens and no one shuts. I'm the one who shuts and no one opens. This is, by, by the way, back from Isaiah chapter 22, 22. The key calls to mind Jesus' words in Matthew 16 when he says, I hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which he promises to Peter and the disciples, I'm going to give to you. But the point of the imagery is this. (laughs) Are you ready? Here's what Jesus wants Philadelphia to realize. Here's what Calvary we need to realize. And all of the churches of this city need to realize. And one day, by God's grace, the people of this city will realize Jesus is unstoppable. He cannot be quieted or stopped. He is holy. He will not lead his people into moral error. He is true. He will not lie to his people nor lead them into intellectual error. He is the one who opens and no one shuts. And so because of that, we can have faith. If there's one thing I want you to get on this service from this sermon, is that we can be a people of faith. there's a sign. God agrees with me. You better listen. You see, faith is not a vague spiritual sense. 
Faith is an act of confidence that what one does not presently see nevertheless corresponds to reality. Our faith in Jesus does not increase because we think about faith. That's why you laugh when I say this, okay? But the new census for 2022 just came out. And in the city of St. John's, today, one in four do not have any faith or religion. Almost 25% of this city now says, I have no faith, I have no religion. But for many, their idea of faith is like that of Star Wars. I'm spiritual. I, I have a feeling. I, there's a force. We, we relegate faith to like karma or Murphy's Law or all of these things. There's a real sense then, but when Jesus writes to this church, he intends every one of these introductions to, to Ephesus and to Thyatira and Sardis and all these to, to build their faith in him. And I, you know this, back when I first moved back here, Myself and my daughter and Jeff Piercy and his daughter, we all went ziplining out in Petty Harbor. And you remember, because I'm 248 pounds. Yes, all of me. <laughs> and when I went to go ziplining, I had to sign a waiver. And the waiver said that insurance would only cover you to 250 pounds. <laughs> I, I, was, I showed the paper to the dude, and he made me get on a scale. I had to weigh myself in front of him. And he goes, you just get in. So in my mind, when I got up there, and the first zip line, if you've been up the Petty Harbor, the first one's like being at a playground, right? It's about five feet off the ground, and you're like, oh, okay, if this is all it is, you can, and then the very next one, you're looking into the abyss of hell itself, it's three or four hundred feet to the bottom. So here was my rationale. I looked at that bracket, and I looked at this little belt they put on me, and I thought, okay, I got two pounds of grace. <laughs> so here's what I have. I got really strong hands. And so my attitude was, if this thing breaks, I'll have a death grip on this handle, and so that I'll dangle there and surely someone will rescue me before I plummet to my death. And for four lengths of that course, I grabbed onto that bar for all I was worth. Until we got about halfway in. And as we got off on the platform, I'm doing this with my hands and all this. And the guy looking at me goes, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, listen, dude, I'm 248 pounds. This thing is rated for 250 pounds. I am not dying today. I'm here to impress my daughter. I am not going to die today. And he goes, man, that's insurance. The harness you're wearing is rated for 1,500 pounds. <laughs> well, that would have been helpful information about an hour and a half ago. Now, everything changed. But nothing changed. I was still wearing the same belt. I was still clinging to the same handle. But now my faith was not in me or my hands. My faith was now in that harness that held me. And I had a ball in the second half of that harness. Man, now I was Superman and off the thing. I was doing this. I, my boy was with me who was fear, and I was trying to match him and everything he did because now my faith had found a resting place, right? As that hymn says. 
What Jesus wants the church of Philadelphia to realize is now I am the Christ of opportunity. I'm the holy one and the true one. I'm the one who's in control. And you don't have to muster up more and more faith. Just remember the object of your faith is me. It's Jesus. When we go out into that world and we face all of the trauma and the, and the setback and the, and, and the, and the resistance that we're going to face, it's not up to you. Rather, rest in the harness of Jesus' love. And when you do that, look at verse 8, you'll have a door of opportunity. You'll have a door of opportunity. Notice this in verse 8. Look at what he says. I know your works. Behold. It's the first of three beholds in this passage. Behold, I have set before you an open door, Philadelphia, which no one is able to shut. Now, understand, he says this after saying, I'm the one who opens and no one shuts. I'm the one who shuts and no one opens. Now he says to this church, I have a mission for you. I have an opportunity for you. You go out into this city of Philadelphia. You go out there where where everyone is going to feel like they're against you. But understand, I've given you a mission and no one can shut that door. Now listen, we're going to leave here and you're going to go into your classrooms and and your workplaces and your neighborhoods and all of the places that you were going to go. And I know we live in a messed up world where we're so politically correct and we're so afraid of offending, we actually end up offending everybody. In fact, I think that the, the modus operandi of today's culture is we just walk around offended. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 no. The holy and true one who is in control is offering you a mission, an opportunity. You can go in a world where this church lived in first century Philadelphia that saw Jews kicking them out of synagogues and out of civic life. And Christ tells them, I've got a door of opportunity that no one, not even the world, Satan can shut. What a promise. You see, we don't have to pine for the good old days. It is such a blessing to my heart to see men and women here who are older And there are times, because now that I'm 50, I remember days when I was quite young. I remember the days when churches were being built and opened in this city. And now they're not. They're being closed and sold and turned into other things and other venues. And we can get discouraged. But I'm telling you that the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed my life as a 21-year-old will change the life of other 21-year-olds in this city today. We just have to believe in Christ and his gospel. We don't have to recreate it. We don't have to water it down. We don't have to repackage it. We just have to stop being ashamed of it. And then we need to stop being jerks about it. We're not better. We're not morally superior. We are weak, broken people who have found a loving Savior. I have to tell you, I have been laughed at, cursed at, spit at. My favorite story is in Mount Pearl, trying to tell a fellow about Jesus, and he threw the television remote at the screen door, blew it up in my face. But I can tell you, I have never met anybody when you really present them with the glories of Jesus Christ, whether they accept it or reject it, they're always intrigued because there's a God-shaped void in every human heart that only God can fill. And we've got to realize that. See, our call to mission, our, our opportunity is not to be liked. The church at Philadelphia was not liked. 
The Church of Philadelphia was not popular. The Church of Philadelphia didn't win Best Church in the City awards, like when you go to Chess's and they claim to have the best fish and chips. But we do have the greatest Savior. And our call is not to be popular. Our call is to lovingly and humbly tell people the truth and then to be patient. You're not going to tell someone that Jesus loves them and that they're a sinner and that they can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ, not through their good works, not through their church name, not through their family legacy, not through the money they give. That will offend people. But you've got to give them time to think, to wonder, to ask questions. We have a door of opportunity, and what is it? Look at it again. He says two things. I give you a door of salvation and a door of service. These are the two things, church. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved. This is the truth. It's a a, a door of salvation. What did uh, Paul, Paul say in Acts chapter 4 verse 12? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I want to ask you something. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 is heralding the trustworthiness of Jesus for you and I. But my question is for you and I, and as a church, is do we trust Him? Maybe you've consciously decided not to trust Jesus. Well, let me ask you something. Is what you trust holy, and are you sure? Is what you trust true, and are you sure? What you trust in, will it prevail Are you sure? If you don't trust in Jesus, are you at least confident enough in what you do trust in to bank your soul on it? Whether that's church or money or people or possessions or knowledge or acceptance or fame or influence or power. Are you confident enough that Jesus, if Jesus is not to be trusted, that you are ready to make the infinite eternal wager of your everlasting destiny? Will you bet your life on your confidence that Jesus is not worthy of your trust or will you trust Jesus? And let me tell you, you can bring all your questions to Jesus and he doesn't get upset. You can bring your objections to him and he doesn't get offended. You can bring to Jesus all the things that you prefer to him. You can bring him your wealth and your job and your entertainment and he says, just, just give it to me. I'll take care of it. You can bring to Jesus that tempt the things that tempt you to sin, whether it be your sexual uh, 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 importance or priorities, your, your thieving, your lies, your gossip, and Jesus says, I paid it all. You can bring to Jesus everything that you can gather in your attempt to deny him as Lord, and he says, I know, I get it. I lived for you. I died for you. I rose again for you. Now give it to me. Can I ask you? Why would you not trust him? Calvary Baptist, how can we not trust him as we bring the gospel to this city? See, if you will come to Jesus, you will find that he is holy and everything that you prefer to him is not. If you'll come to Jesus, you'll find that he is true and everything that you have believed instead of him is not. And if you will believe that Jesus is the one who is in control and he opens and no one shuts and he closes and no one opens, then everything that resists him will ultimately submit to him. 
That's what Philippians 2 says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee and bow, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we have this door of salvation, but Calvary, we have a door of service. Look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. Behold, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you feet, your feet, and they, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, I have a job for you to do. And you'll notice he acknowledges four things about them. Do you see it? He says, I know you have little strength. They were small and insignificant. They were church with little money and no power, likely mostly slaves or widows and many of other lower classes. But you know, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians, remember? He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. What did Paul say on his personal testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He said that Jesus once said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Calvary Baptists, we're small. The only reason we're in this room is because of God. It's only a miracle. The reason we're here is because God opened up doors that no one could shut, and he shut doors that no one could open. There's not one of us in a human perspective can stand in this room or sit here and they say, this is my doing. No, it's not. In our weakness, God supplied. But he also told this church that they had kept his word. They had kept his word. In our liturgy, David read Matthew 28. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. They had not denied his name. They had persevered. Richard Mayhew says, the church could not boast in its own accomplishments, but only in the fact that God walked in their midst and accomplished powerful things through them. Philadelphia experienced the true life that Sardis claimed but didn't have. Sardis said, we're alive, but they were dead. Philadelphia said, we've got nothing to offer. And Jesus says, you're more alive than you think. So listen, our job is not to impress St. John's. Because St. John's will agree with Shania Twain. That don't impress me much. What we want to show the city of St. John's is the power of an almighty God. And so notice in verse 9 and 10 down to the end, there's the promise of restitution. There's the promise of restitution. He says, don't fear what people call you. He says, I will make sure I deal with those who are Jews and are not. Again, Richard May, who says, today's church, which claims to be Christian, but reject God's word, refuse Christ's lordship, and otherwise deny Christ, are modern-day synagogues of Satan. Jesus will vindicate you and I before all men. We don't have to vindicate ourselves. And then we have this promise of rescue in verse 10 and 11. He says, I will deliver you from this trial of life. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trials. It means he's going to walk you through them. In Isaiah, there's a great hymn that we sing in the church I grew up in. It says, some through the fire, some through the flood, all through the fire and all through the blood. I messed up the lyrics there a little bit, but you get the idea what I'm talking about. He says, I am going to bring you through this. And then he promises them reward 
He says, I'll give you the name of God. I'll give you citizenship in heaven, and I'll give you my name. So I asked you this morning, are you a little weary in well-doing? Are you discouraged? Is this whole event today for us to be happy and rejoice in the Lord, otherwise just a speck in a life of just disappointment? As we come to the table of the Lord, I want to remind you about another pastor named Adniram Judson. He was saved as a result of the death of Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames was a schoolmate of Adniram's in school. He was an atheist, and Adniram Judson was shocked to the core of his soul when he heard Jacob die in the room next to him as he cried out in fear and pain and lost his life. He was the first Baptist missionary to Burma. He was baptized by immersion by a friend of William Carey, who was considered the father of modern missions. He served for 34 years on the field in Burma, only to come back home one time in 34 years. And when he did, here's what was said. It was said at times he would disappoint his audience because he didn't tell them of his labors, but whenever he spoke, he only declared the wonderful story of Christ's redeeming love. And they were like, we want to hear about the mission. And he was like, I want to tell you about Jesus. In those 34 years, he buried three wives and four children. He died at 62. Had to work for three years, 12 hours a day, just to learn the Burmese language. He served for 10 years and only had 10 converts. He spent 18 months in prison, hung every night by his ankles with just his head and shoulders on the ground. But when he got to Burma, here's what he said. I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. 30 years after his death, Burma had 63 Christian churches, 163 missionaries, and over 7,000 converts. The work progressed and the gospel power began to open blind eyes, breaking idolatry, shackled hearts, and transform the newly begotten converts into triumphant Christians. And on April the 12th of 1850, at the age of 62, Adnarm Judson died. He waited six years for his first convert, and sometimes after his death, a government survey said there were 210,000 Christians, one out of every 58 Burmese. When he first got to Burma at Ava, the capital city, he wrote in his journal that this is what he said when he looked at the largest Buddhist temple in the country. He said, a voice mightier than mine, a still small voice, will ere long sweep away every vestige of your dominion. And the church of Jesus Christ will soon supplant these idolatrous monuments and the chanting devotees of Buddha will die away before the Christian's hymn of praise. Grant Osborne says, every Christian uncertain about his or her gifts and place in the church as a whole will be comforted by this letter to Philadelphia. The basic message is profound. God is more interested in faithfulness than success. And when we get to heaven, the greatest rewards may well be for the kind of Christians who persevered in situations like that in Philadelphia and remained true to the Lord in an extremely difficult situation. So Calvary Baptist, I don't know what the future holds. I know what we'd like to do. We'd like to fill this room with new believers. We'd like to see churches planted in very needy neighborhoods and communities 
all around this island and the big land. But God may call us to be faithful for years, maybe even decades. And we may not see the kind of success that we would deem it. But we have a door of opportunity. An opportunity knocks. We have a mission. Because Jesus Christ is the Holy One and the True One. He is the one who is in control, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. My question is, do you know him? 